10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. You're listening to Sobia's Ella Sunday. It's Sunday, the 27th of March, and I have the best conversations from your way today. We're discussing headship, leading from the top. We're also discussing Alan's work on resilience and also his expertise on theatrical performances. We've also got Phil Sharrock in today talking about well-being. It's another thrilling morning. Prepare for take Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash LSW slash TT Radio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Good morning, everybody. Um, uh, Alan Osborne is an executive head teacher, and as a head teacher, he talks to schools about special measures, good or outstanding. He's an exceptional head teacher, totally involved in the community the school serves. Um, Alan, are you there? Good morning. Good morning. I don't think I deserve that kind of introduction, but good morning, <laughs> Sophia. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> yeah, very good. Thank you. It's been a it's been a fun morning already. I've been speaking to Alan this morning, and it was really good checking in. <laughs> Um, we had a great conversation uh, and also after I spoke to you Alan I had to talk to somebody else and it's been swings and rounds about but we'll we'll talk about that much much um, more later on. So um, Alan for my listeners can you explain your background and your leadership experience? Um, how long did it take? What type of training did you have and what kind of support did you have? Um, well if your audience has got about 20 hours but I'll try and uh, preface it very short uh, quickly. Um, well, I've been teaching for 20 years now, so I'm an old hand. Um, everything in my career has kind of happened by accident, really. And that's that's the word I use a lot. It's just by pure accident and people having faith in me. I never I, I went into the job because, uh, you know, my parents were uh, that, you know, in, in that profession. I fell into it. I fell into it because I wanted the holidays. Um, and then I just fell in love with it. And I trained in Reading. Um, and I had the calling to, to go back to central London because that's where I did my degree. That's where theatre is. That's where I went to school. Um, and so I just did the conventional route, which is head of department, head of faculty, assistant head, head of sixth form, then deputy head, um, and then head and then, uh, director of education and executive head and all, uh, what was really important to me is that I worked in different types of communities. So rather than the jobs that I've done, what's more important for me is the fact that I've worked in inner city schools, I've worked in uh, very deprived white working class areas, I've worked uh, middle class, uh, high performing areas. Um, I've worked in the whole gambit of of the kind of demographics. So, because I really just wanted an experience of what it's like to teach all types of children. And what I've realized is children are children are children. It doesn't matter uh what background they come from they just all children deserve the best education and the best chance to be free thinkers and to you know help society move so but the key i think sobia that um i want to kind of make very clear is that uh, at every point i had fantastic role models so it was uh 
you know, head teachers saying that I should move on. You know, I never wanted to be a head teacher, but it was Corinne Franceschi who was, I was her deputy. She said, now it's your turn. So it's people pushing me into, into jobs and, and saying it's the right thing that really kind of helped me. I didn't have this burning desire or ambition to get somewhere at the age of 31 or you know that you, you hear these awful stories that I must be ahead <laughs> by 30 or I must you know it's just dreadful so I, I think I've done my innings and um I've made some absolute clangers of mistakes and um I've, I've um... <laughs> let's go through them <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's <laughs> so it all sounds very interesting because obviously you've come with a wide range of experience from different um from different contexts what kind of things did you learn from those mistakes that you did make because obviously yeah. presumably it's made you a stronger leader and the position you're in now the key is um is uh don't be all things to all people so when you first become a head you have this uh i have an imposter syndrome most uh head teachers that are worthy and good have the imposter syndrome which creates a sense of humility but when you first start you feel that you have to be good at everything and you must have the answer to everything um but some advice i was given is don't be all things to all people so when i first started headship i tried to save the world and tried to fix all teachers problems all children's problems and actually what i was doing is i was uh de-skilling people by doing it myself and they weren't thanking me in the end they were just saying oh well we won't do it alan will do it um so that's the first thing don't be all things to all people um the second thing is is to rely on your team because nothing, absolutely nothing, is a one person show. Uh, so what I've loved and I've th I've thrived in working in teams. Yes, you know I lead the team, but actually you're only as good as your weakest link, or you're only as good as the sum of all parts. And so what I love about headship, ironically, is working in a team because lots of people say it's a lonely job. I've never found it a lonely job at all because when I don't know something, I seek people out, I make connections, I've, you know, create teams that uh, I enjoy working with, we challenge each other. Um, they challenge me when I've, I've made a mistake. And the final thing is really that I've learned is having integrity, just if you've, you know, if you've made a, a mistake, or you, you feel that you've not tackled something so well, um, just go, I, you know, what do you think you know can you help me um just have a sense of humility and integrity really and you've just mentioned that you you don't mind being challenged by staff definitely um, not no i don't mind because some head teachers do mind and they mm. do take it personally but mm. in the work environment like you've just said humility is a huge aspect of uh learning and, mm. and i think it's really important like when you are in a senior leadership position because i've walked into schools where for example the middle leadership team doesn't get along with the senior leadership team oh, and wow. i think that okay. can be that can be yeah. quite difficult when you've got that kind of environment so my mm. i guess my point is um that when you are being challenged just to make sure that you're not taking it personally and it's mm. about the situation and it's about mm. the children mm -hmm. um, because the children and the staff come first, um, yeah. I guess. Definitely. Um, I always say um, when I've gone into schools in trauma, um, it's uh, there's two things that have happened normally in the three, four scenarios I've walked into where it was, uh, you know, virtual warfare between children and staff, staff and senior leadership is that... Um, 
is that people aren't being respected or treated seriously. And actually people in middle leadership uh, are leading the school, basically. The, the, the perfect school is when the uh, senior leadership are managing the leadership of the middle leadership team. They are the people that are the most important. They drive the school. And actually, we as senior leaders are the enablers. We help them. We support them. We take the ultimate decisions. But you've got to give them the responsibility to lead. They are the experts of, you know, when I was head of English, I was uh, the expert in English. It wasn't the head teacher who was a music teacher. And so it's giving people the, the, the space to, to lead and to know better. But also what's changed the dynamics in every school I've worked in. And it's something I feel passionately. If you ask any child that I've ever worked with, any member of staff, even ones that maybe haven't enjoyed the, the Osborne time, um, <laughs> they will all, they will always say that, every single decision I make is based on children. And no one can argue with that. You know, if, if you're saying it's based on the children, um, it's based on the quality they get, because that's what we're all in it for. You know, yes, uh, the staff are my most precious resource, but the whole reason why we're in that institution, we're in that building, we're in that, you know, we're in those bricks and mortar, we wouldn't have a job if it, our clientele wasn't there. So every decision is based on a child. And if you and the staff see that and the middle leadership see that, then then it's quite harmonious, actually, in the end. And so you've been leading for quite a while. Do you feel that mm. um, your leadership skills have been tested, especially more during the pandemic? Uh, yes, dread. Um, the pandemic was um, I can't I don't know any head teacher really worth their salt that would say they they went through it it was like a breeze it was the hardest it still is because um even though the media is portraying that it's all over those that are on the on the chalk face the coal face know that it's actually um still still very very uh prevalent it tested me to my absolute limits because also you weren't just dealing with the professional side you're also dealing with the emotional side of your own circumstance so this is the first time that the actual personal world uh mingled with the professional because also I was dealing with my own family members that were in hospital while at the same time leading a school of 2000 and dealing with other adults that were losing members of their family also dealing with scared parents also dealing with the the media fodder of the you know the children are falling behind all of that kind of false narrative that was creating this sense of absolute hysteria which was totally unnecessary and, and unfounded and and and, and um just just totally uh totally misleading so those two years i would never ever want to go through those again i'm not sure i could cope to do that again actually if that happened again i think i might make the decision that i'm not sure i could i could cope with it because um you know sleepless nights uh getting uh, information through the night and then having you know we, we were getting documentation at one o'clock two o'clock in the morning and then having to interact it at seven o'clock in the morning the next day so you were having to mobilize two thousand people 300 staff with three hours notice so if i wasn't awake if i'd woken up and received it at six o'clock i'd have had to in, you know enact it in, in in an hour but again having a team behind me it's not a one person job. And actually I just relied on my team and, and they relied on me. So um, it was, it was pretty, it was a pretty horrendous experience. Actually, I didn't, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, I would rather not have 
go through that again <laughs> so and you know it's yeah i mean it's obviously listening to your story because obviously you teach from the well you lead from the top and it is quite horrendous to think that you were having sleepless nights uh, mm. and things like that and where i'm where i'm coming from and we, we were discussing this this morning before we came onto the show that there are still things happening yes. within schools that it is very very much staff are off students are off mm. it's not a normal environment yet we're being told it's business as usual and um, even like for example from the exam boards because I'm delivering mm. my course and nothing's changed and so for me I'm just kind of like I'm overwhelmed as well because as mm. a professional it's very hard to fit all the content and revision in when children are constantly missing lessons yeah it's it's such a it's such a hard dynamic because also you know you have a another stakeholder group which is the parents so the parents are there's an assumption um that things are business as usual where we know for example this week i've had nine staff off children are in and out we're trying to get them ready for coursework preparations and so what i've decided to do and i've done that if you look at my previous school's websites and the letters i'm just totally uh, professionally transparent and honest with parents i take them on the journey and that, again, has really helped. A bit of advice I give when I teach on the MPQH and I, I say to uh, head teachers, don't feel you have to jargon your parents. Don't feel that you have to, um, put, you know, don't that you have to keep them at a distance. You know, take them on the journey. They will be with you. They're human too. Obviously, keep professional, keep your boundary, but take them on the journey. Um you know, so throughout the pandemic, I told the parents the decisions I was taking, I, but I also told them why. And then then I used to say to them, my, my final thing is, you can't please everyone. I used to say that in my letters to parents, you know, I, I can't please all of you. But what I do, I'm doing is I'm trying to make the best. And that's all you want me to do, parents, is to do the best I can. And actually, no and one like, can argue so with that. And parents didn't argue with that. Yeah, and... Obviously, you yeah. need the parents on side. Do you feel that you were mm. supported as a head teacher properly? And I'm talking about, like, for example, government support, community <laughs> and parents, and even the unions, for example, mm. because right now we're seeing lots of head teachers who've announced that they wish to leave the profession. Leaving, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you ever felt that? And why are your? What's mm. your opinion on so many wanting to walk out right now? Yeah. So I started. Um, uh, the same year that I started, there was eight friends of mine that became head teachers in the same year. Out of those eight, I'm the last one left. They've all gone. Um, so I'll go through. So I'm lucky um, because I cultivated, my team cultivated a fantastic staff base. I um, took parents on the journey. I made a decision very early on to take uh, parents on the journey. They were nothing and still are nothing but supportive. Of course, you get the the one that you know you say the sky's blue and they'll say no it's gray you know that's just life um that's but i've been lucky um i'm very lucky i cultivated some good relationships with unions their 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 hands were tied as well um because also we've got a vocation and so you know we didn't want schools to be shut either even when we were set up against uh the media set us up against uh the parents the unions were trying their hardest. The government, absolutely no support. No, none. Um, it was an absolute uh, disgrace, actually. Um, and everyone knows it. I mean, the, the, I, I can't imagine there's a, a single head teacher that thought that that, they, that, that was a seamless support. And, and you hear 
you know, they did the best they could. Well, I'm not sure sending out information three o'clock in the morning, changing their minds. You know, on 3rd of January 2021, schools will not close. They will not close. They absolutely will not close. On January the 4th, they closed. So, you know, you, you can't tell me as a head that that shows a, st a strategy from from the government. You know, if we did that as head teachers, if we said to our parents something one day and then we said completely the different thing the next day, I think I would be out of a job. Um, yeah. So, um, so and I guess yeah, that, I guess that's the same yeah. for all of us because we were mm. all sitting there thinking exactly the same thing that had we um, given announcements last minute and had we got uh, work in last minute like going through all yeah. these reports and changes it, it would have been somebody's uh, neck on the line. Yeah. What what new things did you learn about yourself whilst you were leading your team and students and even your school community mm. and what has been the hardest thing about your leadership journey? Yeah. So the things I learned uh, was don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, don't be afraid to show your authentic self. Um, in fact, it's it's uh, it's really important to do that. I also learned that um, life goes on. Um, you don't have to, you know, answer all of society's ills. And and some things you just I, I learned really truly. I mean, I'd been ahead by eight years eight years by then. I I learned also to be a pragmatist. There's some things you just have to let go. You you can't do it all. So, and it really taught me that. And now I've taken that into my work. Now actually, I'm just saying, well, I don't need to do that at this moment. This isn't a necessity. This isn't urgent. Um, so it's really given me a a real kind of perspective on myself and then it's also taught me again um i've already i've always had a good work life balance i pride myself on it and also i model it to staff but it also really taught me to have a good work life balance because i want to live a fulfilled life i want to go to work happy so it it allowed me to uh take my my hobbies and my you know my family it just it it made me not take them for granted and really kind of revel in them and then the hardest thing um, was having to deal with people's tragedies. And um, as a head, you always take on everyone's emotion anyway. And I learned that in my first week of headship, which it's very different from being a deputy to a head, because then you're taking on people's, uh, all people's emotions, and you try and compartmentalize uh, them. But when you're dealing with death and a pandemic and grieving children and parents losing their jobs and children having to live in tents on fields and things like that, you know, that was very, very hard because, again, it's when the personal was forced into the professional. And, again, I was very good at keeping that boundary, but the pandemic forced the smudging of that boundary. So um, I'm not sure that that I, I can fully, I fully uh, created that, distinguishing mark I don't think you can if you're a human and you've got empathy I don't think you can ignore the fact that a child's living in a tent because their mum and dad have lost their jobs so um those things yeah. are hard yeah yeah I agree with you um obviously um you've been ahead for quite some time and you are actually uh, Dr Alan Osborne um, <laughs> because you have started your PhD um, mm. uh, alongside your teaching career and um, what mm. made you do it how did you prioritize and find balance because obviously the profession has moved on and people are getting masters and PhDs now and mm. what advice would you give to teachers who are looking to develop themselves professionally by completing a masters or PhD it's so important um 
I always use this analogy and it, I feel very passionately about it. Um, you wouldn't ask a doctor to operate on you if they weren't um, trained. So why would we ask our children to be taught if by someone that's not trained? I, I see our profession as have you know as meaning something. Being a teacher or working in schools or whatever level or whatever job that is a profession. It's a vocation. It needs to be respected. Um, it's a craft. It has pedagogy. It has um, it. It has a real. Uh, place in our society and you don't just learn it 20 years ago and then off you go being a doctor being a lawyer being a teacher um whatever job you do even a hairdresser uh, a plumber you know you have to move with the times it's a craft it's a toolkit and so learning um is a, is part of that is you know things change um complex needs children's needs have changed from when i started to to now so if you just get stuck in a stuck where you are you're not progressing you're not becoming um current you're not become you know you're de-skilling yourself so actually um it's not just about uh just letters after a name it's actually just loving the job that you do loving the skill knowing that teaching is a true true um intricate craft um that, de that deserves, uh, deserves respect and you know has real integrity and that's how i see our profession i and am very proud yeah sorry to interrupt no um, of course i find that interesting because obviously there are other head teachers who feel the opposite there was recently michael merrick who tweeted <laughs> on twitter that he felt that anybody could do teaching and you didn't even need to have a qualification these days to do teach mm. <laughs> to do teaching so what do, mm. what do you think about i mean you've obviously said your uh, your reasoning behind what you're saying mm. what, what are your thoughts on those head teachers who are saying that you don't actually need professional qualifications to be in the classroom anymore um well everyone's entitled to their opinion but i simple i disagree um if you threw me into a classroom um without any understanding about uh differentiation about pedagogy and practice about routines and rituals you know about these are you know, there's a real toolkit to be learned. I'm not sure. Well, I, I'm a bit, a bit aghast, really. Um, but of course, they're entitled to their opinion, and I, I wouldn't go against it. But I, I disagree. <laughs> so, you, um, your school has a unique pedagog pedagogical yeah. approach to achieving academic excellence. Mm. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah. So the the pandemic taught me a lot. Um, when we took the exams away from the children. Uh, it suddenly occurred to me that they were bereft. They didn't know what to do. We, we had guided children for 11 years just to regurgitate um, information in an exam. So I really took a, a painstakingly uh, research process to try and find a, a, an educational system and value system that really matched what I truly believe education is about, which is to create free thinkers, which is to create people with resilience and the ability to to challenge and to pursue creativity and not to narrow curriculums. And so the pedagogy that we follow in our school is that um, we meet the children where they are and we also meet the children in their, in their three stages of, of development. Um, we don't rush children, we don't over-assess children, we um, 
we don't uh, we we do do tests, but we don't overassess. We do it through a mechanism, uh, lots of mechanisms. But we also there's a real place in our school for the the art the arts and creativity and uh, music and dance and eurythmy and yoga and well being. Um, and it's, they're not seen as separate subjects. They're entwined in our uh, vertical and horizontal curriculum. So it's not like we're now going to do half an hour of something. It's now, oh, we're going to, let's stop. You know, we're, we're doing some maths. Let's all get up and let's now visualise the mathematics. Let's go out into the the, the field and, uh, you know, look at, look at maths in a very kind of creative and physical way. So it's basically... Um, everything that I've ever dreamed of. And it's also just giving children the space um, to explore their own passions. Um, and people and say it's learning through play, but it's not learning through play. It's learning through uh, the, uh, creativity, really. And most of this has come from your own background as well, mm. hasn't it? Because you have a background in the arts and you are an mm. actor and you do take part in theatrical performances. And we were talking mm. about our love for theatre earlier. Mm. Can you mm. tell us more about that? And do you, do you, I have to ask this question as well, because I'm pretty sure people want to know, as a head teacher, do you take part in the Christmas panto? <laughs> Sorry? It's, it's a, uh, uh, do, you, I, do you take yeah. part in the Christmas panto as well? <laughs> well, uh, I have done in the past. So, um, I mean, I love performing. I, I, again, um, my parents, you know, sent me to drama school and I did my degree and my MA in, in theatre. So I don't ever want, you know, that that passion is really important to me. Um, and uh, I love being on stage. I love directing. Um, but it also, again, something uh, a very wise woman, uh, Kathy Loxton at Harry, uh, in Peckham told me, she said, you have to be fulfilled in your personal life because you bring that into school and the, the children feed on it and they feel, feed on your positivity. If you come in tired and cynical, which, you know, I do have those days, of course, I'm not the Mary Poppins of, uh, of teaching, <laughs> but, um, but um, you know, I've had many of those days, believe me. But um but I come in and I I do feel fulfilled. When I've had a rehearsal the night before, you know, um, I come in engaged and, and ready to to talk to children. And children love to talk about, you know, the things that their teachers do. And um, so it's 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 just a passion of yeah. And I don't do the pantomime. No, I don't. But um, I did do this year. We did a um, a Christmas play, and I played an innkeeper. For the little ones because um, <laughs> my school's from three years old to 18 so uh for the little ones and um about three years ago with my primary school i was uh, a very old prince charming which i found slightly embarrassing but it was uh, they loved it so it was it was fine <laughs> i love that um i've always said that i really um enjoy working with head teachers who do still take pride in their subject expertise who oh, do yeah. still teach um who do get engaged in all aspects of the school because there's mm. something about that there's that community oh. feel where you just want to be involved in everything that you you know you went into the profession for in mm. the first place mm. um just to finish off then just to let my listeners know that Alan has written for educational publishers on the ability to cope with extreme stress-provoking events without experiencing any personal stress signs and symptoms and how to build personal resilience to withstand such a 
such events. Mm. Now, I was really interested in that because obviously when you do go up to leadership level, you have to be um, very, very resilient. And um, can you just explain us, explain your work to us a bit more in a bit more detail? Because I would like to know more because obviously I'm a middle leader and I'm hoping to go further. And I'd like to know the kind of things that you found that yeah. were useful. It's... um. I mean, it's a, it's a work in progress. I, I think the word without experience any, I, I think it, without experience a lot of, because I still do experience um, challenges. But um, I learned it again through, a, again, I'm a constant magpie and I, 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 I you know, I, I get support everywhere. But I worked with a fantastic head teacher called Corinne Franceschi and she got me into something called trans, transactional analysis. And that's what really helps me. So it's working out people's motivations for different things, which really helps with your resilience. So when you go into a parent meeting and they're being very aggressive or you, you really start working out why they're behaving that. So rather than engaging in the ricochet of they're screaming, they're shouting, uh, you're taking it personally, what you're saying is they're doing it for that reason. And so you're giving them a narrative which helps you manage the situation without becoming personally attached and it also stops you there's different states in transactional analysis so when children when sometimes parents are acting out and they're upset and they're you know saying the school hasn't done this i haven't done this they're acting they go into what's called the child state and so they're acting like children and they're desperate for you to engage with them as a child which is like to argue back but what you have to do then is really go into the adult and you don't play the tennis game with them. So they bounce the tennis ball back to you. And actually your job then is to become the adult and to put the boundary in. And it's not to patronise the parent at all, but it's, to kind, um, it's, but it's to kind of understand why they're behaving. Because no one behaves just for the, the sake of it. There's always a reason. Um, and it is unpleasant sometimes. You know, there's been very difficult situations. All school leaders have them. It's life. Um, and but it's just kind of understanding people's contexts and all of those kind of things. So that's one thing that's kind of helped in in building resilience. But it's also um, the understanding of creating personal time. So I, for example, something I've decided to do is not live near where I work, <laughs> because actually that's not just because I don't want to see parents in the you know, in the in the shopping centre, yeah. But it's actually going onto a bus or a train or a tube for me in London is my demarcation. That tells me now I'm going into become Alan Osborne, the human, as opposed to Alan Osborne, the human that's a head teacher, because actually it's still, um, and it's a job. It's a job that I love. It does define me, but it's still just a job. And then the final thing is to know, and this took me about halfway into my headship, that you've got to make the you've got to make the absolute decision that it's a job. It's a job you love. You give your heart to it. It means the world to you. But my family are much more important to my job. So if I had to make a decision, it would be my family. And sometimes that can get really smudged when you're in the thick of it and you've got Ofsted, so you're trying to leave a school out of special measures and it dominates your life. Um, that's, so it's, those, it's that demarcation. But again, I've only learned that through experience because, again, I've, I've made those mistakes, if that makes sense. So it's only because I've made yeah. those mistakes that I've now can write about how to get yourself out of them. 
Yeah. And the other thing is that it is obviously much easier because you're a head teacher, so you can put the boundaries in place as a head teacher. But mm. for sometimes for staff, it's much more difficult because obviously you have got yeah. people that you're working for. And it's yeah. very hard to say no sometimes without it yeah. affecting you professionally. So I guess um, I guess I can see where you're coming from. There, there, do, there do, does have to be boundaries in place to make sure that you're not being overwhelmed yourself. Uh, and I think people say that, you know, make sure you've got your own oxygen mask on first uh, to ensure that you're not in that position either so Alan we're mm. running out of time because <laughs> I do know that you have got plans uh, for this morning <laughs> um, where do you see yourself going after headship because this is something that I've I've had um I've had thoughts about and I, it's something that somebody mentioned to me once as well once you get to the top what, what's next I, again um I, I'm not at the top I don't see myself at the top um I just see myself doing a job a job because actually my job's equally as important as any job in the school because everyone makes the, the cogs so um I again like anything in my career I don't really have ambitions or um all I want to do is change the world. <laughs> um, so I just want to be in a position where I can uh, change the world and make it a, a better place. And I know that sounds a cliche, but I don't. I don't want. You know, people want to be CEOs, and maybe that, maybe that, maybe who knows. But all I want to do is be in a position where I can keep my my family life. I can keep my uh, my my hobbies. I can keep working with children which is my passion I, I can keep relationships which is how I meditate I meditate through creating relationships um it's my that's my form of meditation it's it's feeding off other people and then giving back um but it's just basically where I'm in a position that I can help change the world so that that's it <laughs> Um, Alan, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure to host you. Oh, and, thank you. And uh, look forward to hearing more from you. And I really hope that your uh, your theatre would love to like, hear about more, more of it sometime. So, yeah, it's been really good fun. Um, please do keep in touch uh, and let oh, us thank know you. how you're getting on. So thank you very much. And thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it, Sobia. Thank you so much. Not a problem. Right. Okay. We're going to head day. over. And you. Thank you, Alan. We're going to head over to the news now. Um, once we've come back from the news, we're going to move over to Phil Sharrock. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk.
Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out. Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. In Scotland, the leader of the country's largest teaching union, Mr. stepped down from the post in the summer after a decade in the role. Larry Flanagan said it had been an honour to lead the Education Institute of Scotland as its General Secretary. Mr Flanagan has been in the role since 2012, but, according to an article in the TES website, has retained his status as a registered teacher throughout his tenure. Mr Flanagan has not ruled out a return to the classroom. In a statement about his resignation, he said he remained deeply convinced about the strength of our education system and the quality and professionalism of our education workforce. He went on to praise the response of Scotland's teachers and lecturers to challenges of the pandemic. EIS President Heather Hughes described Mr Flanagan as a great servant to Scotland's teaching professionals and a very hard act to follow. The process of recruiting the EIS next General Secretary has already begun. In Wales, Plaid Cymru's leader has announced a pledge that all councils led by the party will aim to offer free school meals to all secondary pupils within five years. Free meals are already being extended to all children in primary education under a cooperation agreement with Labour. Plaid Cymru's leader, Alan Price, will tell the party's spring conference, we will begin to create a Wales free of hunger and poverty. The rollout of the £200 million Universal Free School Meals programme for primary pupils is expected to start in September this year, according to a BBC report. The Independent reports that Ofsted will judge schools' curriculums based on their 2022 SATs and GCSE results. The Department for Education said it will not publish Key Stage 2 SATs in league tables, but it will produce its normal accountability measures to be shared with schools, local authorities and academy trusts to inform school improvement. The DfE added that it will give the data to Ofsted to inform inspections accurately, under the quality of education judgment, for example, on the impact of curriculum designs. 
Additional guidance suggests inspectors will be aware that the 2021-22 data is not comparable with other years. League tables will be published for the key stage 4 results at GCSE, and these will also enable Ofsted to make judgments on school curriculum performance. The news comes after a study by YouGov UK revealed that many Year 6 pupils are worried about taking SATs because they were nervous of failure and found exams scary. In South Africa, work is being undertaken to reduce school dropout rates, according to a report in the Daily Maverick. It reports on a panel discussion at the Constitution Hill Human Rights Festival held last weekend, which focused on the school dropout rates, already high before the pandemic, of around one in four learners dropping out before graduation. The Zero Dropout campaign wants to change perceptions about the causes, introduce prevention strategies, and reduce the chances of students dropping out by providing safe and stimulating education environments. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at technology and supporting us getting lunch. Why? Because I asked every teacher I met last week if they had lunch regularly, and most of them said no. The reason being, they're too busy most days. Now, right off the bat, I'm not going to discuss any types of diet. This is just about getting lunch. Simple ways to get calories in to power the body. As always, I've tested these things out for you and added my humble opinion. First, I'm with zero extra cost using the technology of the freezer. You can freeze a sandwich. I quite like this idea as it stopped me eating a sandwich in the car on the way to a school. If I know a sandwich is there, it calls to me. It calls to me. Calls it being frozen meant a hat to wait. The downside is making the sandwich. However, throwing 10 slices of bread down, adding filling and then into a Ziploc bag would be quite easy on a Sunday evening. You might need quite a bit of space in your freezer though. Next, I used the trusty thermos mug and noodles. I thought it was a good idea, but unlike a sandwich that you can eat on the go, I needed a fork and then had to consider not dripping it on my tie, so I actually had to stop and eat. So not as simple as a frozen sandwich, but I did have a hot lunch. Now hold on to your hats. I tried this again. I did enjoy a hot lunch, so I smashed the noodles up before I put the water in the second time around. That day, I drank my lunch. No need to find a fork, lid off, quick swig of noodles, genius. The downside I can see is washing the mug. I know I'll find it on the draining board waiting to be washed when I want to get out the door. Finally, I tried a snack bar. You can get these quite cheap online and you can find them to match most dietary needs. It was definitely the easiest option, but would be the most expensive over time. For me, it didn't feel as lunch-like, if I was being totally honest, but it did the job of rapid calorie input on the go. So, in conclusion, if you're not having lunch, why not try one of these ideas? You will definitely feel better for it. P.S. I googled International Lunch Day and it actually exists. However, it's on the 10th of March, so we've missed... Phil, are you there? Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you. We're just going to have to do this on the phone, I'm afraid. Yeah, we are. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm awake now. Thanks very much. I really appreciate the. Uh, I, I, I lose an hour's sleep and then I get woken up anyway. But <laughs> I told you. Well, you know what? Actually, everything's gone kind of wrong today. But you know what? I do it with style. <laughs> we, will, we will battle our way through. That's, that's teaching for you. That's teaching for you. You have to uh, change things on the go. Okay, Phil, can you just explain to my listeners um, a bit about yourself for those of uh, for those people who don't know anything about you? Um, I've I've been a head teacher since uh, about 2012. Um, and I've I've always I've been a teacher since 
well, let's just say the previous century. So uh, I've been around a little while. Um, uh, it was the usual sort of route up to the top, if you want to call it the top. I don't think it is the top, but to become a head teacher in 2012, moved uh, moved a few schools, got to be a head, and I and, and I specialised in schools that were in areas of high socioeconomic de- deprivation, um, lots of EAL, and um, schools that were what people in my class was pretty tough. Um, and I became the head of a school in Dudley um, that was in uh, a bit of a mess. Um, and within 15 months, we turned it into a good school in all areas, according to those uh, super people at Ofsted. So, um, yeah, I, I, I sort of people said, yeah, you're good at this, Phil. You're good at fixing schools. So I then toddled off around the country, fixing schools around the country for a few years. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I took a break. Um, my wife and I became foster carers. Um, took a break from it all and um, um, stepped away. But recently, I've just gone to work. Uh, three or four months ago, I went to work with a school as a consultant to help it improve and help it improve quickly. And last year, uh, Ofsted turned. Uh, sorry, last week, Ofsted turned up. And yes, let's just say we're very pleased. So, so there you go. In a nutshell, a very, very quick, uh, a very, very quick. Um, resume of, 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 of Phil Sherry. Yeah, I mean, you've got loads of experience. I mean, we've spoken quite a few times because we actually met on LinkedIn quite a while ago, quite a few number of years ago now. And what I really liked about Phil is that Phil's the kind of person, whenever you contact him, he's got that innate teacher thing in him where he's always happy to help out and give back. And it's a quality that I really admire, Phil, and I've never said it to you, but I'm going to say it to you live on air today that I really do admire that quality because it's very um it's very rare these days to find that um you know you know people who give a lot and it's something that inspired me to go into the profession because I am a giver and I do think that you know when you are in a profession the way that you know the profession that we're in it is one of those professions where um both you and Alan were both saying that you know you can only work together in teams Uh, and that is important to me because sometimes uh, teamwork isn't effective in some areas in some schools um phil obviously you've seen what's happening in the news and you're working at school in schools as well um covid it's not left our schools uh, and there's this big thing on uh, ofsted returning back to schools i know that i'm preparing for ofsted right now as well and yeah. you've just gone through one well-being uh, you know what can we do to prepare for it because uh, to make sure that we're not losing our sanity because like this morning um you know i've been running around this morning to sort a few issues out um and also i've got lots of marking on because of ofsted i've got um covid we're dealing with that in our school as well what what can teachers do because teachers are overloaded right now right well okay let's let, let, let's just draw it back to what, what my experience is over over 20 odd years and and uh, you know i think it was something like about my 13th ofsted inspection last week Right. I have never, ever, ever known um, any members of an Ofsted team not be truly professional, understanding, willing to listen, take on board exactly what's going on in every school. OK, I've never, you know, there, there's always a baden, and, and I've been very, I suppose I've been lucky that I've never met a baden from Ofsted, I think is, is, the, is, the, is the first thing to say. But I think I think 
you know, we, we've got to be reasonable about this. Ofsted gets gets such a kudos for something that he does for two days every few years. Now, if you're running your school, focusing on two days every few years, I think you're bonkers. Well, you're an idiot, frankly. It's the wrong. You, you, you don't run a school for them. It's absolutely the wrong thing to do. You say you're buried in market. You know, you say you've got this, you, you've got all these jobs to do and all these different things. And, and it's for who? If it's for Ofsted, you've got a problem. You've got a real problem. So if we talk, if we, if we want to talk about well-being, let, let's cut to the gym. Um, well-being is, is how people, people have often said to me, how did you get a school to go from inadequate to good in 15 months? Right? And, and I say, well, you, you put staff well-being at the heart of it. And it's all about the systems and procedures that your staff have to work in. It's, it's, it's not really rocket science. As, as an aspiring senior leader, right, what, what do you think head teachers spend most of their budget on? What's the most expensive thing in the school? Staff. Of course it is. It's 70, 80%, sometimes 90% of your, your entire budget, right? So why on earth? You'd be absolutely bonkers to make sure that they don't have everything to be the happiest human beings on the planet, wouldn't you? That, that's, that's just, to me, that's just a common sense approach to, to, to leadership and management. You know, I'm the son of an accountant, so I always look at the money. And if, they, and if the staff are going to take all my money, well, I better make sure that they're happy. I better make sure that they've got systems and procedures that are fast, efficient, effective, easy, so that they can live a good, well-balanced life. Because as Alan was saying in the previous show, it's a job. It's nothing but a job. It's a job we adore. It's a job we love. And it's more like a calling rather than anything else. And it's a, and it's a fantastic job. And I wouldn't, you know, and I wouldn't take that passion of education away from me for, for anything. But let me make it clear. It's a job. And what about so, systems, Phil? Because obviously you've just mentioned systems. So for me, yeah. for example, I'm a big systems person where I also yeah. feel that um, there is a lot more bureaucracy than there used to be. And when I try to um, explain that to other people, sometimes they don't understand because for them, they're deeply entrenched in the systems within their school. Sure. Um, how, how, do we get, how do we get them to look at their systems to think about, well, actually, this this is causing too much workload for our staff. We need to think about their well being and what kind of things do we need to need to do? Well, well I, I'm I'm a great believer in the work of a guy called W. Edwards Deming, and there's a prize out in Japan called the Deming Prize, which is it's like winning the Oscars out there for business. Um, it's about business efficiency and effectiveness, and it's and he's a, an American mathematician who they revere out out in Japan, and and you'll have heard of um, things like kaizen and total quality management. And he is the sort of inventor of that uh, of that process where things are right and they're built. You know, when 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 you work in a Deming environment, things are done correctly. Quality is high. There aren't mistakes. Things are done. Things are done well. Things are done um, uh, really, really well all of the time. And one of the one of Deming's key issues um, um, and 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 things that he's recognised is that when things go wrong, four out of five times it's the system that is at fault. It's not people, it's the system. You know, to where is human and we all make mistakes and so be it. That that's that's nature, that's human nature. But um but what we tend to do here in this country is we tend to blame the people. We don't blame the system. And so we have to look at that system that that person's working in to make sure that they have got they can do their job without making mistakes. Now there are lots and lots of things that you can do in a practical sense 
but what the, 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 one of the big things that stood out for me was somebody many many years ago put a load of money into a research that said you should be able to do all your ppa in 10 percent of your time yeah um in 10 percent of your teaching time now somebody came up with that after an enormous amount of research and and they concluded that you should be able to do all your ppa in 10 percent of your time now i made sure that that was possible for all my staff now if i every school i go into that's in difficulty, i guarantee this every school i go into uh, all they do is plan all they do is sit there and they are planning in their ppa they don't have any time for any prep and they don't have any time for any assessment okay teachers are obsessed with planning i went to an ofsted last week right two days they don't look at planning they never have they never will i don't know of any ofsted inspection in history that's ever looked at planning and yet you guys are obsessed with it teachers are obsessed with it my best teachers in my schools do one side of a4 for their literacy for a week one side of a4 for their maths and it's handwritten and it's handed in respect retrospective for the week that they've just done planning should be simple quick easy and effective and, and related to the needs and levels of ability of the children so ppa was a big one for me and it's making sure that those systems and procedures were in place that all the planning could be done all their prep all their assessments could be done in the time that they were given okay and they didn't have to do it in my school they could go on they could go down the pub but they could go wherever they wanted to do to do it as long as it was done they had a professionalism to to keep, to keep it done so systemically that's just one thing but you leaders need to look at the routines and practices of their schools to make sure that their staff are empowered that too many heads you know think that they're more important than the teachers they're not the heads are only the, the second most important they're the second most important people my job is to help you do your job because you do the job you teach kids you're in front of children every day i'm not i do well i do i do, I do get in front of kids i do teach them now and again but but in all honesty my job is to help you do your job so why on earth wouldn't i change systems alter systems make them more efficient and effective listen to you listen to you know, look at what you are buried in, in terms of bureaucracy and find out who is creating it. Now, forgive me, Ofsted don't want it. DFE don't want it. Nobody wants it. Good leaders don't want it. What I tend to find is that the message from the top gets gets mixed up. And, you know, somewhere in between, some head teachers, middle leaders, um, you know, get involved in it and start saying, I've got to justify myself. I've got to create accountability structures for this. And then the person at the bottom of the pile, the teacher, ends up buried in paperwork. Buried. And this happens far too often. And so consequently, you have to be, as a leader, recognise that you're not as important as teachers. You've got to give them the tools and the systems to be able to teach, because that's what matters. That's all, that's all that matters. Phil, what's your, what are your thoughts on things like triple marking? Because triple marking oh, is still happening well, in schools, even though, you know, head teachers and people are saying that it's not. But, you know, they are saying things like, OK, when a student does um, a piece of work, then make sure you mark it and then show improvements. That is still triple marking. And, yeah. I, you know, it, it is getting a bit silly now because yeah. it's like we, we keep constantly having the goalposts changed. Um, and heads are saying, we're trying our best, we're trying our best, we're trying to reduce the workload. Um, with the pandemic, it's heightened even more. And I, I'm just sitting here thinking, well, I'm still triple marking in some places. Well, I, th I think it's bonkers. 
it's, it's a waste of time. Wouldn't you be better giving feedback? I don't like the word marking. I, I, you know, in the school that I've recently got into, we've changed the marking feedback, uh, marking policy into a feedback policy and made it much more succinct, a lot quicker, a lot, a lot easier to do because, because it, it, it you put a massive amount of time into it, into and and, and what's the what's the, you, you tell me, Toby, you're a class teacher. You tell me what's the best way to give feedback to kids. So I I give a combination of written and verbal feedback, but obviously schools want written feedback because obviously that's evidence for for whoever's yeah, in the room looking I, at the I, books. Okay, I went, I went to an Ofsted last week. No, they don't. <laughs> well, that's all. But this is <laughs> no, this is don't. where they. And they never they never have, and this is the problem. You see, teachers are teachers are convinced that oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. Head teachers, too many head teachers are convinced that oh, I've got to do this. We've got to have this marking policy with green pens and pink pens, and we've got to highlight this and, and lower this. And it's just like oh, good grief, no, you don't. It's about honest and open feedback to enable kids to move their learning on quickly. If you were four years old, you're five years old, six years old, you can hardly read, you know, masses of written feedback. What a lot of rubbish. Different to secondary. You need to be able to give those kids feedback and you need to be able to give those kids, you know, um, honest, uh, honest information about their work and where they need to do to get it better and, and give them time to reflect on it. Yeah, fine. But does it need to be done all the time? What a lot of rubbish. You've got better things to do. Let's look at where they are and let's look at what they're doing and let's look at how they, we, we can move them on. Burying yourself in paperwork and procedures is not what Ofsted want. It's not what DFE want. It's not what any decent head teacher wants. They want you to teach. A part of teaching is a bit of marking and feedback. Yeah, of course it is, because kids need to know how to get better. But doing it in a triple marking sense, this is just the, this is this is again going back to people who are so afraid, so afraid of accountability that they're terrified to do anything that could be deemed, you know, anything other than the, the, the ticking the boxes of all the book. The book, the book doesn't exist on this, and I don't know why this has crept in. It's 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 silly, and there's no, there's no need for it. I, you know, and, and and I'll come at you and I'll say I had an offset this week. Well, they didn't. They didn't bother. They didn't bother about it. You know, planning. They never look at it. And and, and teachers are, are sitting there planning for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Why? Who for? Some middle leader who insists that they. Um, the, the geography uh, planning has got to be perfect. They don't. They don't look at it. They don't care. <laughs> they haven't got time. They've got two days. Oh, and by the way, they're in for two days every few years. You know, how are things improving within the school? How are we making things better for the staff so that their well-being is taken care of? It's a job. Nothing more. So set the systems up. Make the marking feedback simple, quick, easy. Get the planning down to a format that is quick, simple, effective, does exactly what it says on the tin. And if you're not there, we can find it and we can deliver if you are off. They take into account that COVID has hit. As long as you have understood it and looked at your figures and, 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 and worked things through in terms of what's happened with COVID, they listen to you. As long as you're open and you're, and you're honest about it. And you've got... Phil, oh, just sorry, to go. interrupt, just one question. Um, obviously... Um, 
when we're thinking about this, you know, you're you're from a primary background and for secondary, there's this huge push on curriculum. I mean, you've been in the profession for a long time. What, you know, there's been different pushes on different strands over the years with the Ofsted. Uh, and this, this strand is curriculum. And I, I enjoy curriculum. I enjoy teaching and learning. I, I enjoy everything about it. But what it, what are your feelings on this huge push on curriculum and, you know, reducing time for other things? Oh, I, th- I, th- I think, it, look, if you go and inspect 10,000 schools, you're going to find stuff out, aren't you? Yeah. And, you know, once, you, once you've inspected 10,000 ta- 10, times, you think, oh, there's a, there's a, we get issues coming up on behaviour. Right, so we're going to tweak our inspection schedule, and we'll have a we'll have a we'll, we'll put it out to consultation because they will say, well, this is what we're finding, right? And then they'll change their inspection schedule accordingly. They change their inspection schedule to look at curriculum now, and and in my opinion, quite rightly so, because primary schools were becoming exam factories. It was all about data. It was all about getting tests passed, and 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 not necessarily inflating scores, but forcing kids into a narrow band of curriculum so that all they did was pass tests. Which, by the way, would would put a gun against your head when you went up to secondary school, wouldn't it? In terms of your progress, eh? So, you know, quite rightly, they've gone into primary, they've gone into schools, and they've said, well, you're narrowing the curriculum. You, you, you need to, you know, we need to make sure that kids have got a, a broad band of uh, of experiences and knowledge. And I think that that's absolutely right. The big problem, the big problem for me is that is the document called the national curriculum because that's far too prescriptive. That's that's the big problem here. That's the the white elephant in the room. They need to they need to look at that national curriculum. And people, even people like. Kenneth Baker, who introduced it, Tim Wilshaw, uh, Mike Wilshaw, sorry, former Hofstede head, and uh, David Blunkett, former Education Secretary, are all turning around now and saying the national curriculum is not fit for purpose. It doesn't do what's what's said on the tin. The trouble is, how can a kid, how can children who live in a leafy suburb in Surrey need to learn exactly the same thing as a kid who lives in inner city Birmingham? We've got to design curriculums for each school to the needs of each to each uh, to each kid. Right, so I, uh, my, I, I, I kept it very simple. I wanted it to be fun. They were, they were primary school kids. Why can't it be fun? It should be fun. It should be nothing but enjoyable. So you know, I, I, I you know, you, you've got to be free, free enough in your thinking and your abilities to say, right, we, if if we've got a problem, we can adapt our curriculum accordingly. I've, 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 I've said a story many times about some lads in year six who were struggling with their behaviour. Um, and, and really finding things very, very tough, and they were fighting every day, and they were making the school a bit of a misery when I turned up. So um, I bought a scrap car, and I got them to fix it up. And um, you know, the, a parent came in and helped me, and for a few weeks we went out the back and we stripped it down, polished up the parts, and you know, they they then sold the parts on eBay and made a few quid for themselves. And for we did that for about six weeks because they couldn't give a damn about onomatopoeia. They couldn't give a damn about supporting the clauses. They were bored senseless, and that's why they were kicking off. So we adapted the curriculum accordingly, and we took these lads out, and they fixed up the scrap. Well, they didn't fix up the scrap car. They stripped it bare and sold the part for a profit, and then got a limo and had a drive around their area in a limousine with the money that they'd made. Now, that's, that's just a very simple example. Uh, you know, another one was, you know, I had, a, I had a year three class who were doing Anderson, the Anderson shelters, and they were making them out cardboard in their classroom so i got a nice field so we got a digger in and we we built a the kids got on the digger properly supervised i may have, and, and and built a 30 foot underground anderson shelter and we made an outdoor classroom so it's 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 having the vision as, as a head to say to your staff you know don't you know don't don't be afraid 
be brave. You know, have the courage to do what is right for your kids. You know, I encouraged key stage one learning to be 50% outdoors, you know, because the early years curriculum's right. It's learning through play. And then suddenly in year one, you've got to be all official and follow the national curriculum. Don't be ridiculous. Let's get out. You know, so I encouraged my year one and year two teachers to get outside as much as is humanly possible and, and, and learn through play, you know, because the, the data and the research is quite clear about learning through play, particularly when you're young. Now, you know... Now, you that's your... You so, Phil, just sorry to interrupt there. That's obviously um, your educational philosophy, but obviously we do have um, other people and other head teachers and other schools that have other educational philosophies. Um, you know, knowledge-rich curriculum, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, you know, I'm holding a phone here that has got the history of the human knowledge in it, in a, and I can find out anything for you in five seconds. So the knowledge-rich curriculum is dead. It, there's, there's, it's just, it's just a fallacy. There's no point to it because I've got, I've got, you know, I've got a smartphone in my hand here, and you ask me anything, I'll find it out in five minutes. So learning things to regurgitate it for a test is dead. I don't know why we follow this thing. We, we, we need to develop those skills that are going to enable children to flourish in a society that is moving that is moving fast into the 21st century. And yet we persist with an education system that is rooted in early 20th century, um, you know, origins. And it's, it's just bizarre. You know, it, it, you and I both know. You know, we could be doing. You could be in New Zealand. I could be. I could be sitting here in England. We could be having a face-to-face -face conversation over a screen, if necessary. You know, and sharing documents and working on them at the same time. You know, knowledge rich. Yeah, knowledge rich doesn't mean, you know, not learning things. Yes, of course, you need to learn how to read, write, you know, have a basic understanding of the world and, and how things come together and, you know, your, your basic understanding of everything. But to but to have a curriculum that forces, that, that it does force, and I, I do get quite passionate about this because um, my, for my children who are now through it and they're in college, school was a waste of time. Because their skills and their talents and their uh, their attributes were not what Mr. Gove wanted them to be, and 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 the best example I, I can think of is me and my brother. Really, I I was an academic, so I fit in. I was fine. I could regurgitate facts. I could I could memorise. I could learn, and I could regurgitate it. My brother my brother couldn't. He left with one O level in woodwork. But I tell you what, my brother can build houses, and he runs sites now, and he's a very articulate and intelligent man in his field. Whereas I struggle to put a picture up. Command picture hooks have saved my life. We all have talents. We all have skills. We all have different routes. And the problem with our system is it's, it's, they have this absolute focus on it's got to be one particular way. And you, your secondary school kids are pushed into choosing which subjects have got to be done for a school's accountability structure. So knowledge rich. Yeah, you've got to learn things, but not in the way that we do it. It's just, it's just, it's, it's just a fallacy. You know, but I understand why staff do it because that's how you're held to account. The whole system is set up to be held to account based on, you know, uh, uh, based on how you're doing your exams, and and that's wrong. You know, there, there's so much more to it, and I'm glad now that they focus more on the curriculum about how you're getting to those results, rather than focusing just on those results. Because what's going to happen is, and what is happening is, all those schools that were very good at becoming exam factories are now getting caught out because their curriculum is too narrow, it isn't broad enough, and it isn't giving the children the experiences that, they, they, quite frankly, they have a right to. So, you know, it, it, but you can only generate that kind of experience for children. If staff, are, if staff are empowered, staff have no fear of failure. They're encouraged 
to try new things that are right for their kids. And, and they know that they're going to be supported by senior leaders, not punished. And, and so if you, you know, in my experience, if you're working with inner city kids, you've got to get them out. You've got to get them in. You've got to get them on trips. You've got to get them out to, you know, I've, I've been on coaches with nine-year-olds who, who've pointed at a cow and said, sir, is that a cow? I've never seen one when they're nine. You know, it, it's just ridiculous. And so you have to, you have to be brave. You have to, you know, you have to work as a, work as a unit and recognise that as the boss, you're, you're not as important as the people who do the job day in, day out. Um, Phil, there was a... If you to do a, get a school from inadequate to good in 15 months, that's how you do it. It comes from the bottom. It doesn't come from me, it comes from the bottom. When everybody's driving it forward, everybody's got ideas, everybody's listened to. Now, as the boss, occasionally, as you say, you might have to turn around and say, no, I need to do this, and that's fine. And people will understand as long as they understand where they fit in in the whole journey. So it's led by everybody. Skill staff well-being is driven by all the people from the bottom up. Phil, thank you so much for coming on today uh, and just going through um, information for us. Um, we've had a message coming saying that, yeah, they agree that the whole system needs changing and it's outdated. Uh, and I think... Um, I think, it, you know, it just needs to be refined a bit. Um, you know, there's loads of things happening in education. And I, I think for me, what's worse is with the rise of social media, I think what it is, is there's a, a lot of um, information flying around all the time um, yeah. and a lot of opinions all the time as well. And I think... I think it's just a, a case of uh, everybody understanding clearly what their educational philosophy is and then making sure that they're working towards that educational philosophy because essentially what everybody wants to do is make sure that they give their children and their communities the best start to their educational journey um, because essentially it does come come to their to their futures and again that's something in itself as well some people think that you know education is for the sake of learning which when I was younger I used to agree with yeah it is for the sake of learning but um, at the same time it is also for career prospects and I know I know there's a lot of people in the education sector who who don't um, who don't think that education is just for career pros prospects or that's not the reason or the main purpose for education but as I've become older um, I do think that social mobility and career careers are important. So yeah, it's about thinking carefully about your educational philosophy and where you stand and then making sure that you're uh, adapting it to your context. Because one of the things that I found, Phil, is that a lot of people um, who I, I've either worked with or people that I talk about education with, uh, even ECTs who are coming into the profession, uh, you know, they don't understand their context. And if you don't understand your context and you don't understand your community how can you possibly raise standards uh, well I, I, I totally agree with you i mean it's you know you talk about social media and you, you talk about the world of technology and how it in, invades and pervades our life and and, and how it you know it's it, it, it's an inherent part of life isn't it i mean and and look at the way that we're doing something over over the internet and, and podcasts and stuff like that and and, and you know what, what do we do to kids we we you know, are we going to teach them how to use it properly so that they can filter, you know, fake news from real news? They can they can understand how online systems work and how other systems work. Or are we going to tell them to turn their phones off, put it in a pocket, and don't ever let it get it out? 
do you know what I mean? We we have to be braver as a profession, and you know, we I I, I simply think that it's you know you have to look at the system. I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. You have to look at systemic problems, and systemically, the DFE have not been up to it for a very long time. But they like the system the way that it is because they have control, they have an understanding over it. And they should, and, and they need to, you know, you change a head teacher every two years, like they change the Secretary of State. What would happen to a school? A school would get into a riot mess. And so consequently, this is where we are. You know, we, it, 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 we have to be braver. We have to be, we have to be better as a profession as well. And, and our unions need to step up and start saying enough's enough. I think you know? for me, yeah, thank you for that, Phil. I think for me, um, I'm at the stage now because I've been in the profession for 17 years and everything that I'm seeing, um, and I'm going to be honest here, I am very, very disappointed by being on social media when I'm observing the way that professionals behave towards each other. It's not, it's nothing. When I started 17 years ago, that would not be tolerated in the profession. Um, in fact, we weren't even allowed to have Facebook when I first started. And uh, I'm quite horrified. It, you know, social media is a tool and how you use that tool has its advantages and disadvantages. But for yeah. me, the biggest thing has been the, the, um the level of um unprofessionalism that i've changed uh, that i've seen and i you know it's changed me as a professional um yeah. it's made me realize that it's not the same profession that i walked into because obviously i you know i left for a bit and then i came back and it is a completely different profession and i look at our ects now and i look at our head teachers who are very very strange right now and who are looking to leave and i'm sitting here thinking there are so many fantastic things about our profession because I remember all of it I remember you know being in the classroom getting a buzz out of teaching you know doing things um you know that made the made the students feel that you know yeah. they, they were there for a reason same as staff you know but now I, I look at the profession and I have kind of changed a bit because now I just see it as a job um, and it's kind of kind of sad because I feel I feel that kind of part of me has changed now. Um, and I, I think partly it's to do with social media. And so for me, I, I'm looking at I'm looking at things from a, a perspective where if I was an ECT now coming into the profession and this is my honest truth if I was an ECT coming into the profession and I joined Twitter and I'd seen the profession in the state it was it reminded me of the old test forums that used to be on there yeah. as well I would just walk straight back out well there's a, we've got to look at the profession haven't we and say well why are 40 percent leaving in the first five years why are all the senior leaders now looking to, you know, they've had enough? Because they don't get the support. The system the system is not fit for purpose. And it always comes back to the system. Always. You know, you know they, they like their research. They like their, you know, inf information backed up with rigour. Well, I'm telling you, it's been around for a very long time. The, 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 the simple system is, how has the system moved on? When I took my O-levels in 1985... You did two years of study of particular subjects to sit an exam at the end of it. Tell me that GCSEs are any different in 2020. Nothing has changed. And you tell me that the world isn't the same place as it was in 1985. And that's the problem. 
they don't know how to sort it. There are people within education who need to know how to sort it, but they don't want to change it because the exam industry is worth four billion pounds every year. So why change something that everybody's happy with and the public understand and everybody knows because they've all been through the system. So I feel so sad that we're losing so many talented young teachers early in their career because they're being driven out because it's not the job that they thought it was. But the, front, but the, but the fact is, systemically, in every school, and you can argue me, with me if, you, if you'd like on this one, but in every school that I have ever gone into that is in difficulty, it is always, always the leadership and management that have created the systemic problems. So that's why schools have gone downhill. And it's, and, and that's the problem. It, it, it's, it ain't rocket science, but it is to some. Um, so last it's question. so sad, so sad because there's so many talented, brilliant, brilliant teachers out there who are just not allowed to fly, not allowed to soar, not allowed to be that brilliant, inspirational human who can engage kids in their learning and get them running through the gate at 10 to 9 in the morning because they're so excited about what they're going to learn today because they're battered into a corner to say, no, triple mark this, bury yourself in paperwork over that. You know, it's wrong. It's, and it's, well, it either changes or, well, we're not going to get any different. <laughs> we're we're going to get nothing different. The only a fool believes you're going to get a different outcome if, uh, if you follow the, the same systems. And you know, Phil, things. just to finish off, um, last question. Um, there are a lot of, um, there was this report by the OECD uh, recently that was saying that um, the level of experience of our teachers in the UK is lower than the level of experience from other teachers worldwide. Yeah. Um, do you think that's part of the problem that there's lots of young teachers who have been you know, moved up into senior leadership roles and they have gone from one extreme to another or not had the experience well, in dealing with leadership? Yeah, well, they're products of their own system, aren't they? They go school, college, university, which is a which is a product line. Yeah, it's a production line. And, and then they go straight into initial teacher training, which is, which is more robotic production line. And then when they get to a school, you know, they're, they're all expected to deliver in the same way. And, it, and it's, a, it's such a classic industrial model where, you know, back in the, when the education system was first set up, it was set up for, for, to, so that everybody could become a worker. Nobody could think, just be a worker, follow the rules, follow it and, and, and stick it out and follow it all the way through. I've, I've seen people, you know, become head teachers after, after one year in senior leadership. And, and, and they do it because... Oh, I think we've lost Phil. Well, because they're cheap. Okay. And that's that's another aspect of it um, that is is becoming more prevalent. But when they're put in this position, they can't cope. And so they, can, and so they leave and they, they can't handle it. So there is much to do, um, Sophia, you know, and it, and it takes a break. There are some fantastic head teachers out there, and I'm sure that you've You've spoken to them, and you um, and and you know they've brought their views views on air. But but the thing is, they're the brave ones. And why should they have to be brave to have an opinion? What kind of world are we living in where you've got to be brave to have an opinion that's not the political line? You know, it's 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 so sad. Yeah, because I there's think so many brilliant brilliant people out there who were just absolutely shackled. Sometimes because they're not good enough, but other times because. Um, 
other times because of a system that doesn't work for the overwhelming majority of children. And and that and that saddens me. That really does sadden me because there's because when you release that, when you go into schools and you release that talent, when you release that, um, when you release those, you know, people who have got this passion inside them to engage kids and and make their systems simple, quick and easy. Oh my word! You see, you see such rapid, rapid improvement in the schools. Um, you know, results, abilities, the environment, the well-being, everybody's smiling, everybody's happy, everybody wants to come to work, you know, everybody wants to get into school every day, it's not a job, it's 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 an enjoyable thing to do every day, you know, and, and, and it's, and it's, and the, the leader's job is to make sure that that is the environment that these, your staff come into, you know, nine times out of ten I get DFE guidance, and I'd, I'd, I'd read it, I'd roll it in a bowl and throw it in a bin, because that's what it is, it's guidance. If it works for my school, I'll do it. If it doesn't, clear up. You know? And that's what leaders have got to be braver. They've got to be braver and start standing up for the children and their staff and, and, and getting it right and stop being so frightened. The fear that pervades through our fabulous profession is, 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 its, is its biggest downfall, and it makes me very, very sad because great people like you can see the changes. And I, you know, I, I don't run a school now. I don't want to be a head teacher anymore. You know, because quite simply, because of that, because I found even though I was a successful head teacher, the whole system came in against me, and I had to battle. You know, I, I, I say often I won a thousand battles, but I recognised I can't win this war. I cannot win this war. It just doesn't like it. It doesn't like you when you when you when you're better than it. Do, do you know what I mean? And and so it's um it's 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 incredibly frustrating for everybody. And I feel so deeply for 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 those people, those great people who are in a classroom every day who can't do the job how they know it can be done. Okay, well, Phil, there's people in the studio who agree with you. I've had a message coming in saying, go, Phil. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on today uh, and just giving us um, a summary of lots of different educational uh, topics. I really do appreciate you coming on um, and I will catch up with you after the show. Um, uh, that's it for today. Uh, we are going to have uh, Khalil on and we've also got um, Kaylee on this evening as well. So do tune in to them. I'm going to head off now. Um, as I've been saying that I, I am trying to uh, finish my shows much earlier um, at the moment because I am uh, overworked with Ofsted and trying to finish everything um, in terms of just my normal workload and getting through the day. Um, thank you so much for tuning Again, we will be back um, in two weeks' time. Take care. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.